It's now our opportunity to continue uh, our study of the book of Genesis. And so I'd ask you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. Uh, Genesis chapter 40. And as you make your way there, I want to warn you, we're actually going to be covering Genesis 40 and 41. And if you look on the pages of your Bible, you're going to notice that this covers a lot of real estate. So in light of the length of the text, I just wanted to clarify that I'm going to be reading it through the sermon itself. But to help us get to the text, I just wanted to make a general observation, I think, that would give us a good perspective on how Genesis 40 and 41 works. It's been said that comic books are one of the few great American art forms. I mean, ever since the rise of Superman in 1938, the American obsession with the superhero has exploded. And have you ever wondered why they're so popular? What is it about this genre that has captivated the minds and wallets of so many millions through the decades? Comic book historian T. Andrew Wall in his presentation, Superhero America, the comic book character as historical lens, argues that this genre captures the American essence. That's why it resonates. In these fictional superheroes, we find an idealized self with whom we can identify. In other words, the superhero is nothing more than a revisioning of the American self. The superhero genre didn't teach us that we needed a hero as much as it taught us that we could be a hero. And in true American individualistic fashion, we read comics and think, ah, that's me. Consider, for example, Superman. Created by the Jewish immigrants Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the story consists of a foreigner who comes from another planet and lands in America to pursue a better life. Or Wonder Woman. She was born amid uh, the, the beginnings of the feminist movement as women began to take a more dominant role in society through the Rosie the Riveter years of World War II. Others have noted that Stan Lee created the X-Men to tap into the zeitgeist around the civil rights movement. I mean, think about it. At a time when Marvel Comics weren't yet comfortable having African-American superheroes, so the X-Men narratives pictured these mutant characters who were born the way they are, and they just want to be productive, helpful members of society. And the evolution and internalization of the superhero continues into today. I mean, Spider-Man in comics most recently has been portrayed as half African-American, half Latin American teenager. Or Thor currently is a female. Wolverine is a female. Miss Marvel is now a young Muslim girl at this point. Other classic characters continue to be recast in these diverse roles. Do you see the connection? Wall, the historian, is not the only one to pick up on this. Journalist Mark Bowden in his New York Times op-ed piece, Why Are We So Obsessed with Superhero Movies?, agrees with this suspicion. And just listen to this. This is fascinating. He says, Even if they are not meant to be taken seriously by anyone older than 12... All stories mean something, even bad ones. If heroes are idealized humans, then today's reflect an exaggerated cult of self. They are unique, supremely talented beings who transcend laws, even those of nature. They celebrate exceptionalism and vigilantism. 
The old American ideal of succeeding through cleverness, virtue, and grit is absent, as is the notion of the common folk banding together to overcome a threat. Gone is respect for the rule of law and the importance of tradition and community. Institutions and human knowledge are useless. Religion is irrelevant. Governments are corrupt and or inept when not downright evil. The empowered individual is all. And so we can't help it. At the end of the day, we have this tendency to want to be the hero of our own story. And this comic book-infused confidence presents us with a devastating problem. Namely, we lack said supernatural powers. Here we are trying to eliminate evil, do good, and save the planet, and we can't even lose 10 pounds, stop yelling at our kids, or regularly save for retirement. We may be as geeky as Clark Kent, underappreciated as Peter Parker, or socially distant as Bruce Wayne, but powerful, intuitive, and resourceful, we are not. Bullets pierce us, obstacles stop us, gravity glues our feet to the ground, our bodies break, our hearts ache, our world seemingly spirals out of control, and in our more honest moments, we can freely confess that we are not the hero, but we need one. And it is only in these more honest moments that we can rightly appropriate and understand the message of hope contained in the Word of God. Contrary to the way we read comic books, the Scriptures must be looked at differently. Instead of reading or listening for how we can be heroes providing rescue, we are called to read or listen for how we humble ourselves to receive rescue. Instead of seeing how we save the world, we see how God saves the world. And so in this episode of The Ultimate and True Hero, we enter into a story reminding us of the real root of our rescue, the source of our salvation. In the passage before us today, at least seven different times, the text will give God the credit for saving the world from impending doom, even though he chooses to work through a supernaturally empowered human instrument. And this story fits perfectly with Genesis so far. You remember that Genesis has been telling us the story of God's restoration of blessing to the cursed world through a special family line. And having traced this special line through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this particular section of the book of Genesis shows how God used Jacob's children to bring about said restoration of blessing. God saves, yes, but he does it through a, speci a specifically chosen group of people. In this case, the budding nation of Israel. And the man of the hour most recently has been Joseph. Last week, we traced his meteoric rise from the pit to prominence, back to prison, all while experiencing God's favor, blessing, and smile. If Genesis 39 told us anything, it was that God blessed Joseph with prosperity, luck, fortune, success, whatever word you want to use, so that he could pass that blessing on to others. In this case... God enabled him to bless Potiphar's house before his wrongful accusation of attempted rape landed him in prison. Then we saw that God enabled him to be a blessing in the prison. 
as the warden places Joseph in charge of the entire prison system. But all of this begs the question, how is Joseph to be a blessing to the world while locked away in a prison? I mean, if God's going to use special descendants of Abraham to restore blessing to the world, should we then conclude that the line of Joseph is a dead end? Again, the narrative powerfully portrays how God, through Joseph, imparts blessing to the world through the unlikeliest of circumstances. It is an amazing story. This worldwide blessing, this rescue operation, if you will, unfolds in this text in three stages. And due to the massive size of this account, I'll lay out the structure of the text ahead of time. I want you to see through this that God grants, first, a supernatural ability. You're going to see that in chapter 40. God grants supernatural ability, upon which he arranges a strategic opportunity, which you'll see in the first half of chapter 41, upon which he secures a purposeful prosperity. You'll see that in the second half of chapter 41. So the text moves from, this, from God giving this supernatural ability, upon which he arranges a strategic opportunity, upon which he secures a purposeful prosperity. So let's see. How God, through this chosen representative, will impart blessing to the world. And maybe we can learn how God still is doing the same in our own. We begin with the supernatural ability. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 23, God is clearly giving Joseph this unique ability. The story begins with an exposure of Joseph's supernatural ability to interpret dreams. Now, we know already that God has favored Joseph with a capacity for wise and diligent oversight. I mean, that's clear in the previous chapters. Because God was with him, he enjoyed success in his labors. But up to this point, Joseph's success seems no different than that of any talented executive or entrepreneur. I mean, had the text not so clearly given God the credit for Joseph's rise, it would be easy to think that he was just a hard worker. In other words, up to this point, there is nothing evidently supernatural about Joseph. But here, the narrative invests an entire chapter to unveil Joseph's superpower that the text hints that he had all along. What is that power? Discerning the future by means of dreams. We saw a flash of this back in chapter 37. In fact, there, this supernatural display is the very thing that seems to have lit the fuse on his already tenuous relationship with his brothers. You remember? In 37, what we had was this dream thing on the surface. And, and he's, he's telling like his brothers that in some way, he tells them not only the dream, but that he thinks he's going to be ruling over them. He gives an interpretation of the dream. He doesn't just state the facts. And while it could at first just seem like the ramblings of a pompous adolescent, there's that little note at the end of verse 11 where it says, but his father kept these sayings in mind. But we don't know anything at that point. We just know that it seems like he's just a really arrogant, uh, uninformed young man. But in this chapter, we're going to see that this was no fluke. So listen in on this confirmation of Joseph's superpower, both its origin and its effectiveness, as disclosed in this chapter. So let's look at the origin of this in verses 1 through 8. 
Sometime after this, talking about this time that Joseph got thrown into prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time under his custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. Now, get what's going on here. Joseph, in his new position as the assistant prison warden, has been trusted with the care of two high-ranking political prisoners. Both the position of cupbearer and the chief baker were not standard slave positions in Pharaoh's household, but ones of great responsibility. These men were the last line of defense against any attempts on Pharaoh's life that would have taken place through poisoning. One ensured the satisfaction and safety of food, the other ensured the satisfaction and safety of the wine. In fact, even in the book of Nehemiah, we learn that such positions even could have included informal authority of like the ancient court or like a more modern cabinet position to a president. I mean, this was a close working relationship with the king. And so these high-ranking officials here have legitimately sinned against Pharaoh. Uh, the word committed an offense in verse 1 is the same word translated sin back in chapter 39, where Joseph says, I will not sin against God in this way by committing adultery. So whereas Joseph refused to sin against his ultimate authority, you're going to see a contrast here. These men had actually sinned in some way and deserved to be in prison. So Joseph is not on equal ground with them. He shouldn't be there. They should. And presumably they're awaiting judgment for their crime. So Joseph at this point is responsible for the well-being of these high-ranking officials awaiting trial. And he cares for them diligently. And we would expect nothing less of him. This diligent care is seen in how he actually notices that something is off with them. <laughs> he doesn't just recognize it also, but he acts upon it and asks them what's wrong. I mean, you've really got to be paying attention to who you're caring for to pick up on these clues. And their respective troubles all revolve around a specific dream. And you need to keep something in mind. In the ancient Near East, way more so than today, People view dreams as possessing a unique capacity for the communication of the supernatural. Whereas we scientifically explain dreams away as the processing of memories, they saw dreams as potential messages from the divine. Yet having dreams was one thing. <laughs> Knowing what they meant was something else entirely. So the men see their dream from that night before as specifically pertinent. And they transparently share their angst regarding the mystery of these messages with Joseph. And how does he respond? And pay attention to this. You see it there in verse 8. 
do not interpretations belong to God? In other words, if God gave you the dream, isn't He the only one who can tell you what it means? And here's the real surprise. So, tell them to me. (laughs) I mean, Joseph is claiming a crazy ability here. He's saying that only God can make these things known, so therefore, let me know what's going on because God has, in essence, given me this ability. And in this brief interchange, we learn that Joseph actually believes that he has this divine capacity for knowing the meaning of these God-given dreams, which will blow your mind when you think about his previous dreams. You wonder, what buoyed his hope through all this time? The fact that he knew that his dreams would come true. And herein lies an open confession that such an ability, knowing the future through dreams, is from God. And matter of fact, Joseph claims to have this ability, and he claims to use it for the relief of these men. So here's what we need to do now. We need to see if Joseph really possesses this ability or not, because it's one thing to talk the talk, but we all know it's something else to walk the walk. So we're going to pick up the story at verse 9, and as we listen to the men's respective dreams, Joseph's interpretation and Joseph's interpretation, we need to pay careful attention to whether or not Joseph is actually effective. What we really want to know as we're reading these next few verses is if God has given him this supernatural ability to know the future through dreams. Verses 9 through 23. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only Remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. And then the second dream. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now, while the two dreams bear some similarities, Joseph predicts two very specific, and totally different outcomes. He's not just spitballing it, but he is speaking with life or death specificity. This is not a mere horoscope forecast or a fortune cookie forecast, you know, one of those that's so vague you could apply it regardless, like something decent will happen today. It's not even a weather forecast, like there's a certain percentage chance that this is going to happen. It is a straight-up foretelling of the future. And and Joseph is so confident in his God-given ability that he even asks the cupbearer to put in a good word for him with Pharaoh so he can escape this unjust imprisonment 
and slavery predicament. He's so confident that God has gifted him that he sees this interpretation event as a potential means for his own personal rescue. But the supernatural ability is only a potential means for Joseph's rescue if he actually has this ability. (laughs) I mean, this whole thing falls to pieces if he's just making it up. Again, it's one thing to claim a superpower. It's something else entirely to carry it out. So let's see if Joseph actually has this divine ability as we continue reading in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. You notice what's happening here? It happens exactly as he called it. In Joseph's interpretation, he specifically said Pharaoh would lift up the head of both men. You'll notice that in the previous verses. But one would be specifically lifted up in restoration. The other would be lifted up in retribution. Notice that, lift up your head, and then the text adds, from you. (laughs) It's violent. And so here we are three days later. The cupbearer is exalted. The chief baker is executed. Everything exactly like he said. God has indeed granted Joseph a supernatural ability. But he will not allow Joseph, interestingly, to use this ability for himself. God has something special in mind for this superpower. Notice that this amazing ability does not get Joseph out of prison as he originally had hoped. Remember what he asked the cupbearer to do back in 14? To put in a good word with Pharaoh so he could get out. Note what happens in verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. (laughs) It seems that God had something greater in mind for this power. At least something greater than Joseph's immediate relief. And we'll find out exactly what that is in a moment. But in the meantime, we can all see how God had granted Joseph a supernatural ability. Now, as God continues to plot for the rescue of the world, there's going to be another step in his plan. Having established that Joseph has this supernatural ability, the text will now enable the second phase of God's plan, which centers upon a strategic opportunity. Here we are at phase two of God's plan to rescue the world. Strategic opportunity. This is in the first half of chapter 41. And as we approach the text, text, you need to note that as providence would have it, chapter 41 will take us from the prison to the palace in which the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, has a, you guessed it, a dream. Note how God uses Joseph's divine ability to arrange for this strategic opportunity. Let's read verses 1 through 8. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. 
And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now you talk about an opportunity. (laughs) Not only does Pharaoh have this dream, but the specificity of this dream troubles him. I mean, for the Egyptian, the Nile was the spiritual and physical source of life for the land. Its annual inundation was the key, literally, to their international prosperity. So, for healthy cattle and grain to come up out of it, only to be followed by unhealthy cattle and grain swallowing it up, is anything but a dream. It's a nightmare. Though Pharaoh can like, discern the ominous undertones of this, he still doesn't know what it means. And it's through this nightmare that God is orchestrating an opportunity for worldwide rescue. He's going to bring Joseph, a seed of Abraham, into a position of influence. And are you seeing how this is happening? Not only is Pharaoh troubled about the dream, but none of the wise men or the court magicians in Egypt can help him. The text says, all the wise men, all the magicians, none could help him. And not only can none of the wise men or the court magicians in Egypt not help, but the chief cupbearer finally remembers the special plea for Joseph this divinely gifted dream interpreter, to remember him to Pharaoh. We pick up on this at uh, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And the young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. You talk about a rave review. The cupbearer, at the precise time, Joseph's superpower was the most needed. And when Pharaoh was the most desperate, this cupbearer connects Joseph with the most powerful man in the world. Notice how Joseph will prepare for this meeting, and particularly, I want you to be listening out for Joseph's first words to Pharaoh. They are immensely significant to understanding the main point of this story. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Now notice Joseph's first words to the most powerful man in all the world. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin. 
such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. Now, just pause here. I want you to notice that when Pharaoh is retelling this dream, he actually adds more details. He makes it even more vivid. This was a disturbing thing for him. And the thin and ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, faced with the opportunity of a lifetime, standing before the most powerful man in the world, what are Joseph's first words to Pharaoh after he lays out his plight and positively commends Joseph's abilities? There's not a courteous thank you or happy to help or you're so kind, but a correction. <laughs> Joseph begins his interchange with Pharaoh, clarifying that this superpower is not inherent to him, but originates from God. Again, Joseph clarifies that this superpower, this thing that will eventually save the world, is not inherent to him, but comes from God. Essentially, he says, God, and the implication here is the God of the Hebrews, not the gods, is the one and the only one who can speak to Pharaoh's well-being. Yet, this correction doesn't face Pharaoh one bit. He just keeps talking, and he recounts the dream in vivid detail, and he ends by noting that none of his magicians could figure out the meaning. And once again, Joseph is going to clarify that this vital ability to interpret the future is from God. He wants Pharaoh to get this. Listen carefully for the repeated emphasis of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream in verses 25 to 32. Notice what keeps getting repeated here. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. <laughs> now, are you noticing what's going on here? Are you seeing how Joseph exercises his divine capacity for interpretation in a way that God gets all the glory? Joseph knows that the world is threatened, and so he clarifies that to Pharaoh. But at the same time, he wants Pharaoh to know that the key to averting this crisis is responding to God's special revelation. In His grace, God is telling him what is about to happen, and so Pharaoh needs to respond appropriately to what God has revealed. Therefore, Joseph not only tells him the meaning of God's special revelation, but he then applies it, and this is uh, verses 33 to 36. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth 
20% during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. Personally, uh, if you know anything about me, I love Joseph's application. I think he and I would get along. I, I love a clear plan. Joseph here exercises his more natural giftedness for oversight by telling Pharaoh how to avert this divinely disclosed crisis. And the plan makes total sense. Put someone competent in charge of managing this crisis, put several competent leaders underneath him so that they can take advantage of these unprecedented years of plenty and save up for the unprecedented years of famine. Makes total sense. And he says, if you do this, the land will not perish through the famine. Here Joseph is offering advice that, if properly executed, will save the land of Egypt. Here Joseph, think about this, a seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, offers advice that will be a blessing to the Gentiles. should sound familiar for those of you who have been in our study, but I don't want to camp out on that too long. We need to note here that he not only offers the advice by means of this strategic opportunity, but he's going to play an active part as God uses this to secure a purposeful prosperity. Don't lose track of the storyline. I know we've got a lot of verses here. So far we've seen that God has granted Joseph a supernatural ability upon which he has arranged a strategic opportunity, upon which he secures a purposeful prosperity. That's the last half of chapter 41. So, the question is, will Pharaoh heed God's gracious disclosure of prosperity and doom? If so, what role will Joseph, the seed of Abraham, play in a plan that could bring about blessing for the world? And so we read in verse 37, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Wow. This is the ultimate rise from rags to riches. On account of God's presence with Joseph, Pharaoh exalts him to his second in command. I love the fact that, that Pharaoh here finally gets the message. Remember how Joseph kept telling him that God was the key to his power, right? 
accordingly, Pharaoh here finally acknowledges that this wasn't just natural talent, but this was something given by God. This is why in the opening verses, he labels Joseph as one in unique possession of the Spirit of God. This is the first time this phrase is used in the whole Bible, and it will not be the last. But something divine is happening. He sees this potential success as coming from God. Joseph has made his point. Additionally, Pharaoh explains that Joseph's divine ability, since God has shown you this, is the reason he will make him the vizier of Egypt. It's, an, it's a well-known position in the ancient world in that time, the, the vizier. It, you would think of it as uh, kind of like the prime minister of England. You know, who rules England? Well, formally, the queen of England does. But functionally, it's the prime minister. Pharaoh is going to still retain formal authority, but functionally, he is letting this son of Abraham rule the nation, the empire. And so Joseph not only gets the job, but he succeeds in following the divine plan. Notice what happens in verses 46 to 49. He executes like to the T. Joseph was 30 years old. Just imagine that. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until... He ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Uh, lest we think that Joseph could have forgotten where he came from, or that his giving God the glory for everything was merely a pietistic whim, the text is going to give us one more clarifying explanation of this rescue plan. It's buried here amid all these years of prosperity. Joseph is doing a great job. He's, he's storing up all this grain, so much so that they can't even count it. And Joseph... And the next couple verses is going to have two children. And in the naming of these two children, he's going to continue to affirm the real root of his success. Listen to the meaning of the names as we read verses 50 to 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. <laughs> Though Pharaoh changed his name and married him off to one of the daughters of a pagan priest, Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh, which literally means he who brings about forgetfulness. Clearly, Joseph named him this because he is actively attributing the reversal of his misfortune to God. He wanted everybody to remember that. God is helping him move on from his painful past. Then Joseph's faith continues to shine in the naming of the next son, Ephraim, which literally means double fruitfulness. Again, Joseph names him this as an opportunity to testify to all the Egyptian nation that would hear it, that his fruitfulness... And this land of suffering came from none other than God. If this, was, if this plan was going to work, by the way, as it seemed it was destined to do, God is going to get the credit. 
And so we ask a final question of the text. Does the plan work? I mean, this is ultimately where it lies, right? At, at God's behest, Joseph successfully saved up food during the seven years of plenty. But the question is, will his resources actually sustain them through the famine? Would it be enough? Because it wasn't just enough for Egypt, by the way. We're going to see that it would be enough to rescue the entire Near Eastern world. Let's read the conclusion of the story. Verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. Notice it makes him the instrument of rescue. In verse 56, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, listen to this, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. God showed blessing to Joseph, and through him showed blessing to the entire world. Here we see how God supernaturally empowered representative saved the world. Let me repeat that. Don't miss the point of the story. Here we see how God's supernaturally empowered representative saved the world. Thus, the nation of Israel would read the story of Joseph to this point with hope knowing that God would still fulfill His plan to bless the world through them despite personal hardship. They could identify with Joseph and count on the fact that he would continue to work his plan. Whether it be hell or high water, defeat or famine, slavery or exile, Israel could remember that God was still carrying out His worldwide rescue plan, a plan which they would play a pivotal part. And so the story gives hope. At the same time, the nation of Israel would also read Genesis 40 and 41 with humility, knowing that God would still fulfill His plan to bless the world through them as He supernaturally provided. They had nothing in and of themselves, but they had everything as God had supernaturally empowered them. I love that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7 uh, where God explains why he chose Israel, and it's just, just such a blessing. It, read it for yourselves. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Do you see the point? 
Israel was to always review their history and know that God was getting the credit for everything that was taking place. He was ensuring their success. He was their ultimate hero. They weren't natural-born heroes. They weren't strong. They weren't mighty. They were who they were. They would experience what they would experience because of God's sovereign, gracious, supernatural intervention. And that should drive them to humility. Friends, humility and hope. The same is still true of we who are God's people today, is it not? See, the same God that is in operation here in Genesis 40 and 41 would still provide, as we continue to read through the rest of the pages, a hero to bring blessing back to the world. And not just temporary blessing, like the relief of a famine. This hero would be one who knew hardship. It would be one who was divinely empowered from God on high. And bring such a hero he would do. That this climactic hero was the true son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who came unto his own, but his own would not receive him. In fact, despite evident signs of supernatural favor and his evidently unique relationship with the Father, this hero's kinsman would consign him to certain death, handing him over to the Gentiles for their own profit. Sound familiar? And despite much suffering and isolation from the Father, even death itself, he would supernaturally rise from the dead to a position of influence. He would ascend to the throne of heaven itself to secure rescue of his chosen people and through them bring rescue to the world. So dear friends, I call on you today to give the chosen son of Israel all the glory for what blessing you know and what blessing is still to come. Salvation and rescue has come through the one who conquered death, satisfied God's wrath, and secured eternal life. Salvation and rescue has come for all who would repent of their sin and trust in this hero alone. And through him alone, blessing will come to the world. And so, who is this promised one? Who is the direct source of our rescue? In whom will the world know ultimate blessing? None other than the Son of God Himself, our true hero, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, such good news should be of immense help to you right now. Indeed, there is famine in the land, friends. The economy is receding, evil is spreading, righteousness is waning. Frankly, this world needs a hero. And yet a hero this world already has. <laughs> See, practically, knowing Christ to be our hero does something in us. First of all, it should readjust our hope. When you know Christ is the hero, when you know that God is the one that is intervening in on our story, friends, this should readjust your hope, especially in hard times like this. I would have you beware of heroes or rescue from anywhere other than above. Now, practical exercise here. I would encourage you to analyze your hope statements. We, we make these kind of statements all the time. And it's kind of like a game of Mad Libs, if you've ever played it, right? I'm going to give you a phrase, you're going to fill it in, and then I want to see just how you answer. So this is what I call a hope phrase. If, and then put a subject and a verb, then a comma, we'll be okay. Um, or I'm going to make it. Let me give you some of the popular options that people will normally fill in the blanks with. 
if my presidential candidate wins the race, we'll be okay. If my bank account is at a certain amount, we're going to make it. If my health looks like it's improving, I'm going to be all right. If my grades are at a certain level, I'm going to sleep easy. If my home looks a certain way, I can rest. If my kids achieve a certain academic or athletic standard, we're going to be all right. Do you see what I'm saying? Like We have these if statements that we fill in with a subject and a verb, and they're normally horizontal. What you need to understand is that when you walk away from a story like this, if you're going to let the text impact you the way it impacted the original audience, Israel would read this and be reminded that God is the one who would ultimately fulfill his promise of rescue. That's why the text, over and over and over again, keeps giving God the credit for what's happening. It isn't that Joseph was such an amazing man and we need to strive to be like him. It was always God-given ability to Joseph and through him salvation came. Through their slavery, their hardships, the ups and downs, the wins and losses, God had demonstrated that He could work on a universal scale through the chosen seed as promised, and they should know that they should not lose hope. They would look to Joseph and see a picture of how the nation of Israel could one day operate. And friends, we look to the way that God has promised a hero, and we remember that God will ultimately fulfill His promise. Through recession, hardship, ups and downs, wins and losses, God has demonstrated that He is working on a universal scale through Christ. And we must not lose hope. Do you have hope? Does Christ as your hero actually make you happy, optimistic, encouraged? Or are you regularly feeling despondent and doomed? I just don't think that the Eeyore attitude is a fruit of the Spirit. Like the constantly being down. I understand tough seasons. I understand lament. And I am happy to weep with those who weep. But the general flow of our life should be one of hope and joy. See, in contrast to horizontal hero statements, how often do you actually express what I would call vertical hero statements? Let's change the Mad Lib up a little bit. So instead of doing a if and then a subject and a verb and then our statement of satisfaction, what if we do a since and then let's replace the subject with a member of the Godhead and then use a verb? Like this, um, examples. How often do you assure yourself of the following? Since God is in control, I'm going to make it. Since Jesus will come back, I can rest easy. Since the Spirit is with me, it's going to be all right. Since Christ has paid my sin debt, since the Spirit will give me a new body, are you getting the idea? When you can say those kind of statements, like your rescue comes from above, and you could actually hold on to that and say, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to make it. I can rest easy. It's going to be all right. That is when you have truly received the fact that your rescue comes from above. Things may be bleak, The emotional or physical bank account may be bare, but Yahweh will deliver. He will rescue. He may use human means, but he is the ultimate hero, and he must get all the credit. And so I ask with the words of the old hymn, is Christ the solid rock on which you stand? Is this hero the grounds for all your confidence? So knowing Christ to be our hero should readjust our hope. Which leads us to the second practical implication of the story. Practically, knowing Christ to be our hero 
should also reinvigorate our humility. (laughs) It should reinvigorate our humility. When your story is told, who gets the credit? Who's the hero of your day, your week, your year, your life stage? While there may be no way to coherently tell the Joseph story without giving God the credit, there are plenty of ways in which we leave God out of our own. Not only do we like to view ourselves as the hero of the story, but we like to think that our natural abilities are a result of our own ingenuity or effort. And nowhere is our need for humility, friends, more evident than in conflict with other people. Now hang with me here because we are two steps removed from the text, but still connected. The point that I'm making from this text is that God is our hero. He has provided a hero in Christ. And I'm saying that when we embrace this truth, it cultivates within us humility. Because we don't see ourselves as the hero anymore. We see him as the hero. And here's what I'm arguing. When you think that you're the hero, when you think that you deserve the credit, the inevitable outcome of that is conflict with other people. Conflict in the family, conflict in the workplace, and even conflict in the church. The way it rolls is this. You've got the husband who wants the wife to acknowledge how hard he's worked or, or the, the wife who wants the husband to know how hard she's worked. And so they drop these hints like they're, they're looking for some credit, like for some recognition. And then all types of horror can break loose as they continue to battle for glory in the home. Or maybe you've got an employee who's ticked off when another person gets the raise or when someone else secures the promotion. Or the church member fumes that that his or her ideas weren't considered, and that this person's suggestion wasn't taken. And questions get asked like, well, why did so-and-so get to do such-and-such? This self-absorption reveals a I am my own hero mentality, and this must be forsaken. Friends, when Christ is our hero, we're happy just to benefit from his rescue. We win in just being on the team. It's, it's like the, the guy who's like hogging the ball all the time in the basketball game because he's wanting to pad his stats. He doesn't care if the team wins. But for us, like, we should just be happy to be on the team. Like, Jesus is the star. This was Paul's key to humility, by the way, in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Less of self, more of Christ. In verses 1 through 4, he tells them to enjoy unity by expressing humility. And then in verses 5 through 11, he tells them how to achieve such unity and humility by adopting the mindset of Christ who made himself nothing, who obeyed, who took himself to the very bottom, and then God himself exalted him. It was this old phrase attributed to Ronald Reagan, but I've heard it attributed to others as well. It goes, there's no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. There's no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I think it's a great saying. But in a Christian worldview, it's only half true. Because, friends, indeed, Reagan's right. We shouldn't be concerned about ourselves, but it's missing something. Because we should care who does get the credit, and that should be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the cry of the people of God in Old Testament and New. I even referred to this text in the pastoral prayer today, Psalm 115.1 where the psalmist opens by saying, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Or even Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, We have this treasure 
talking about the message of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. (laughs) Knowing Christ to be your hero, in what way should your life be most dramatically impacted this week, in this season? Is it a renewed hope and his certain rescue? If that's your need today, I'd encourage you to talk to God about that right now. Confess your disbelief and commit to displaying confidence in Christ alone. Or maybe your greatest need in light of this truth is a reinvigoration of humility. If you've been a little too concerned about yourself, your glory, your recognition, I'd encourage you to close out this time by confessing your pride and committing afresh to being more concerned about His glory than your own. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge shamelessly today, or with great confidence even, that you are our hero, or through your chosen instrument, your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy rescue and blessing. And the ultimate need has been met indeed through his death and burial and resurrection. And Lord, the the ultimate expression of that, though, still is to come when he returns to rule and reign over this earth and fix all that's broken where the root has been remedied, or the fruit of that is still in process, and we look to that day where you fix it fully, finally. But in the meantime, Lord, we, we fight this battle in which we try to make ourselves our own heroes, when we try to like arrange our own destinies. And I, I pray that, Lord, you would humble us, and that you would point us to the Lord Jesus. And, and in looking to Him, I pray that you give us hope and confidence, knowing that He will bring it to completion, He will rescue, or that what we ultimately need is as good as done. And I also pray that you would cultivate within us humility so that we understand that your plan does not unfold on our back, but upon the back of your Son. Or give us a heart to treasure His glory above our own in every aspect of our life, at church, at work, at home, and abroad. So not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.